Global consumerism is a $40 trillion a year phenomenon, which makes it the largest, most predictable investment opportunity on the planet. Who are the prime beneficiaries of global consumption trends? Mega brands. Welcome to the Mega Brands podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Clark. In this podcast, we explore mega trends through the lens of a global investor with the ultimate goal of identifying the most relevant, most innovative brands that are best positioned to become what I call mega brands. These are the brands that are customer obsessed, have a corporate culture of innovation and self-disruption, create products and services that are in high demand, that exhibit strong brand love from customers, are serving a global opportunity and appeal to multiple demographic groups. What's the reward for a company that meets these criteria? More revenue, more cash flow, higher market share, and the potential to reach the trillion dollar club. Please enjoy our next episode of Mega Brands. Eric Clark is the portfolio manager for the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund in conjunction with his partners at AccuVest Global Advisors. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of AccuVest Global Advisors or Rational Funds. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of the Brands Fund or AccuVest may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Eric Clark from Mega Brands. It's uh, Thursday before Memorial Day on May 27th. And looking forward to this conversation, we're going to talk about retail, pop culture stocks, uh, almost a, kind of a lightning round where I hope we're going to cover a lot of different spending categories and the brands that people love and maybe even bash some names that we think are just, you know, are, are becoming or are already irrelevant. Uh, my guest today is Dan Klein. He is from Seven Investing. He covers uh, the retail stocks as well as entertainment stocks and a lot of the popular, um, you know, pop culture stocks coming to us from West Palm Beach. He's the lead advisor for Seven Investing. Uh, I am a member. I find some great value out of all the, the reports and the research that those guys do. So, uh, and I think Dan, don't you don't you host some sort of a YouTube channel too? I have to I have to get more involved with YouTube. I admittedly I'm- yeah. So, so I host Seven now, which is our Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at noon live show, where we like to say we cover the news of the day from a long-term investing strategy. So we try to cut through the clutter. I, I look at a lot of uh, financial news out there and it's people yelling about what's happening in the day. Like who cares why X stock went up 3% or 2% on Wednesday? We don't think like that as investors. So I like to think with 7investing now, which is a very interactive show. You can watch, you can ask us questions. Uh, we'll take user comments. We have the different members of the 7investing team cycle through uh, that we're just doing something that, that isn't being done out there. And really, explaining the market, welcoming new investors in, giving experienced investors, uh, you know, maybe a new way to look at things. I think there's a, a lot of similar mindset in how most in investing services uh, look at things. And I think most analysts are valueless. People who are trying to guess stock prices this week, this month, that's not a good use of your time. Uh, you need to identify really good companies and invest in them for the long term. That's the core of our philosophy at 7investing. I love it. You know, if you follow, you know, for people that follow me on Twitter, I, 
sometimes I'm a little edgy. I mean, I, I guess maybe it's my Jersey roots, but I have definitely not been kind to the analyst community um, because honestly, they deserve some of the, the commentary. I mean, th this quarter in particular, and, and maybe last, you know, when, when the pandemic started and, and most companies just pulled their guidance, you really get a feel for how worthless most of the analyst community, specifically on the sell side anyway, is because they're not getting force-fed information to update their models. And so now you have these wild swings in reported earnings versus estimates because the analysts are flying blind. And I, I've always wondered, you know, what value they bring. They probably have never actually managed money for people. So I, I, I would love to see someday an actual rating system that ranks all of the analysts with their picks, buy to sell. It, it's just in a very opaque industry. So, you know, it's I don't a, know that most of us are going to get much value from the sell side, you know, research community. Yeah, it, it's a pretty big problem. So if you're an analyst, your job is to get attention. So if you go on CNBC, you have to say something provocative and it doesn't really matter if it's true, they're going to put you on. And I think the problem with a lot of the analysts is they only understand financial models. They don't actually know how to look at a business. And I'll give an example. Dollar General has been a, a very strong player in the retail space. It's not a store I enjoy shopping in. I find them very disorganized, but they know their audience incredibly well. They know exactly where to put the stores. They're, they're, they grow at about a thousand stores a year. And every time they report, analysts will come on and talk about their same store sales. Same store sales are not a relevant metric for Dollar General. How many stores they've added is the relevant metric because basically they open a store and I don't remember the exact number, but it takes six months or a year to get to you know 1.7 million. And that's what the store is gonna do. That's the audience it serves, the geography it stores serves. And they might open another store three quarters of a mile away because the vast majority of their customer base isn't that mobile. I don't think your average analyst has been in the store, has dug into their business model or really understands what they're looking at. You see that when Costco reports too. You should be focusing on the membership numbers with Costco, not the same store sales. Costco doesn't need you to buy anything other than a membership. Uh, so it is a very, very flawed system. And what we try to do, and you know, our, our core product is each of us making one stock pick a month that goes to our members is we drill down on these companies. If I'm gonna pick a company, uh, I've spent months reading about it, researching it, watching analyst calls. If at all possible, I've used the product, I've visited the product. Uh, that's not true of everybody. Obviously there are plenty of people on the team that are picking companies and spaces where, where they're not gonna be customers. In my case, almost every company I pick is one where I've been a customer, where I've experienced it. And look, I could be really famous if I wanted to go on TV and give a hot take. But it's sort of like the you know sideline reporter in a football game. Like, are you really bringing value most of the time? Sure, it's great if you could point out that uh, you know the quarterback is limping in a way that we can't see on TV. But most of the time, it's uh, hey, coach, what do you think of that last quarter? Like, it's a tough space to be in, and it's not one I give a lot of respect to. Yeah, it's funny you say that. You know, from a returns perspective, because let's face it, we all are investing our hard-earned dollars to try to generate some sort of an attractive return. Otherwise we'd keep it in cash and feel good that it's just always gonna be there. But you know, boring old dollar general serving mostly US uh, consumers, the return since they went public, I think it was around two, somewhere around, uh, somewhere around 2010 or 2009, 
840% versus 380. So a boring little stock that's had good store growth has crushed the S&P over that period of time, just serving that little niche of, of customers. You know, Costco is the same way. You know, when, since Costco went public, it's been a monster performer, 6,000% versus 1,500 or so percent, just doing a boring business that's low margin with huge turns of inventory. They're just, you know, they're in the, they're in the moving business, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I agree with you. I don't love the Dollar General stores from a customer service experience. I don't even love Costco, frankly. I mean, my wife tends to go and she's like, you want to go to Costco? And I'm like, yeah. I just generally don't love that experience, but I understand the value for consumers. Yeah, and we're not the customer for Dollar General. I'm, I'm gonna guess we're both doing reasonably well, so we're not buying half a roll of toilet paper at a time. Uh, but Dollar General knows exactly who its audience is. And, and Costco, look, I have not been to Costco since the pandemic. We, we lived in too small a place to use Costco the past few years. We've moved to a larger place and I'll probably rejoin Costco. But part of the reason I go to Costco is entertainment. It's fun to see, oh, wow, there's Nerf guns on sale or there's a book I've been meaning to read or I can buy three pounds of toffee and get home and wonder why I did that. Uh, you can go to the food court and get your cheap. They know how to do it. And then when you drill into the company, you see what they do. And there, there was a really good CNBC documentary on this, what they do on the product purchasing side and how they basically go to you and say, okay, you've got uh, jeans that you want to sell me for $19.99 wholesale. I'll take uh, a million pairs, but you're going to get it down to $13.99 wholesale. I, they, they are incredibly good at product sourcing and building their, their supply chain. And when you look at most of the retailers that are doing well, they spend an enormous amount of money on the back end. Amazon's the most famous example of this. Amazon came out at the beginning of the pandemic and said, we made all this money, billions of dollars in profits. Yeah, we're going to spend all that. We're going to put it all into improving our ability to get you stuff. And we've seen almost every retailer that's winning has done that. And that's going to mean there are some quarters where the numbers don't look great. And on a surface basis, People who are playing earnings reports, like you're going to get it wrong because there's going to be a great report where someone doesn't like a company saying they're going to invest in their future when that's exactly the right move 99 times out of 100, maybe 99.9 times out of 100. No, I, I agree. It's, it's a shame that we have such short-termism these days. I mean, you know, maybe it's the pandemic. And I, I mean, the, the, the demand for online trading with free commissions has certainly never been higher. And so we, we all want this like instant gratification, but you know, so, and sometimes that works, you know, if you're a momentum trader and the momentum factor is doing really well and it's persistent, then you, you know, you, you're probably, your portfolio probably looks a lot smarter than you are, uh, but eventually <laughs> that changes. So, you know, the, fr from a long-term perspective, just getting really important trends, right. Can make a, a dramatic, you know, impact on your portfolio. And, you know, as you know, we, I created the, the dynamic brand strategy and, you know, my goal is to, you know, take a look at there's 7 billion people around the world. And as humans, if you really want to strip it down to simplicity, we earn, we save, and we spend. And all the leading companies inside of those categories of earning, saving, and spending are probably really good businesses. And they're, they're probably really good stocks and yet nobody ever put them together in kind of one portfolio. And, and my, my pitch to everybody is, what could be a better core equity portfolio than something that's tied to 7 billion people earning, saving, and spending? And, and that's kind of how we approach it. And everybody does things a little bit different. 
but you know, let's let's talk a little bit about retail. Number one, in my experience anyway, working with financial advisors, there is very little direct dedication to this theme of retail. And, and I understand in some ways, you know, oh, it's a tough business, the margins suck. And, you know, but the reality is you're serving just in the US, you're serving, you know, 300 million people across different categories. So again, if you get it right, and you're, you're kind of part of our mind and our wallet share, you're probably really good businesses. So we'd love to hear your view of the current retail landscape or you know any, any places within retail you're really excited would be a good place to start. Yeah, retail isn't sexy. It's not, you're not likely to buy even the best retail stock and have it be a 10 bagger in six months. That's just not the way the industry works. And I think most of the people in the investing space are chasing these outsized returns and you know, in order to do that, you're also going to have a bunch of losers. I think it's relatively easy to look at retail and see who the winners are. And I would argue right now that there are three categories. There are the clear losers. There's the Sears and JC Pennies of the world uh, that didn't invest, that made all the wrong decisions, compounded over decades. Uh, you know, but go back to Sears Shop My Way, a ridiculously poor loyalty program. You're going to see all of these companies that just clearly didn't invest and thought, I'm big, I'm going to stay big. It's really easy to identify those losers. Then there's the middle category. There's the Coles and the Macy's of the world, where you look at them and you go like, well, they're making some of the right moves, but is it too late? Like, have they lost their customer base? You know, is putting a, a Sephora and an Amazon return desk, uh, you know, in Coles enough to bring customers back? Can, can Macy's make themselves interesting to a generation that maybe doesn't care about them? I think those, the jury's out. And in my case, in retail, I'm not going to invest in those companies because I, I don't really know. And then you have your clear winners. You can look at your Amazons, your Walmarts, your Costcos, your Best Buys, your Targets, your Dollar General, uh, Five Below, Ollie's. You can look at companies and go, wow, these are incredibly well-managed companies. They have a strategy for growth. And the strategy at Five Below does not match the strategy at Target. Target is building on an omni-channel model uh, with tons of curbside pickup and delivery and get it however you want. In general, Five Below wants you to go to Five Below and have that sort of entertainment treasure hunt experience. So I actually think this is a space for relatively conservative investors to get outsized returns. What's the problem with it? You're also going to get stocks that don't perform the way you think they should in the short term. And I'll give you a really good example. Ollie's. Ollie's has been crushing it during the pandemic. They they use their existing supply chain to pivot to things people needed. You know, maybe they didn't need as many blenders, but they needed soup. Maybe they needed basic exercise equipment. Whatever it was, they found a way to get it. And their sales were incredible during the pandemic, but their costs were also high because they, they had to have COVID mitigating things. And when their earnings reports came out, analysts, uh, I hate to say it, use that dreaded word again, they said, well, these numbers are great, but they're not going to be able to duplicate them next quarter. Well, that's not the point. They don't need to duplicate them. They've pleased their customers. They've increased their customer base. And when we go back to normal, yes, their top line sales number might go down, but their profit margin will also improve because they won't be dealing in a pandemic. So what are we looking at? Did this company serve its customers well, 
grow its customer base, those are going to be the ones that continue to grow. There are some exceptions. Uh, the one I always talk about, Kroger. Kroger has done really well during the pandemic, but I think they're going to get crushed after the pandemic because they're competing with Amazon and Walmart, which want to be in the grocery space and don't need to make money on it. I don't think there's anything differentiating about Kroger unless you happen to live closer to one than any other grocery store. And even that could be mitigated by how easy delivery is. So I actually think this is not the hardest space in the world to analyze, but you have to get in and dig in. Walmart is one of the winners. And when they first went to two-day shipping, it was a giant logistical mess. Uh, you know, They were not good or buy online, pick up in store. That was not efficient, but they over the first year they did it, relentlessly attacked it and fixed the problems. And I think people are somewhat understanding uh, when new things roll out. Same with Amazon. They struggled at the beginning of the pandemic to get you what you need. And they adjusted very, very quickly. The best companies in these spaces are companies that know their customer and adjust accordingly. So if you're TJX companies, another great retail winner, you don't need to be doubling down on omni-channel because a big part of your brand experience is that people come in and they walk into a Marshalls or a TJ Maxx and they leave with something they didn't know they wanted because they felt it was a good value. So you really need to know your audience and invest accordingly. And you know we've seen all your big retail winners with the exceptions of some of the outliers like TJX, which knows its customer, They've all invested very heavily in fulfillment and, and backend and things you don't see. Uh, and that clearly paid off really well during the pandemic. And, you know, it's funny, TJ Maxx and Ross, I, I you know, I, I do my, my channel checks on, on a regular basis. And, you know, I have to say a little bit along the lines of Costco and Dollar Gen, both of which have outperformed the market significantly in, in a customer experience that, you know, is eh. TJ Maxx Ross, I kind of feel the same way. I mean, you walk in there and you're like, oh my God, like it, they're, they're just not really that compelling, but TJ Maxx and Ross are serving a key market. And TJ Maxx, since their inception, going public versus the S&P, 11,190 versus 1,500. <laughs> I mean, like a 10 factor <laughs> just going in for the treasure hunt. So it's not like, you know, in some ways you have to really focus on customer experience. I mean, I think increasingly that's going to be more important because we're doing more of our shopping in fewer places. So that's going to put pressure on giving a, a better experience. But my gosh, I mean, a 10 bagger in a TJ Maxx and I'm, I'm, I don't have Ross stores in front of me. It's, it's probably pretty, uh, pretty similar. So yeah. It, so it's one of those things where I don't like that experience. Now I enjoy Five Below because they have like candy and fun things. But if I go into a, a clothing store, it's because I need a piece of clothing and I'm not a fan of, it's funny. I had, let's call it the day trader experience in Marshall. The first time as an adult, I walked into Marshall's, I needed a suit for a job interview. I found exactly the suit I needed in the right size, no alterations needed at an incredible price. And for years, I thought that was the Marshall's experience. When here's the reality, you don't go to Marshall's because you need something. You go to Marshall's to look for a value. That is not a way I enjoy shopping. It is not a way my wife enjoys shopping. My son and my mother, absolutely love to go to Marshall's and just see what they come across, uh, you know, and it's entertainment for them. So you have to know what your experience is. Now, 
could Marshall's, you know, incrementally grow its fan base if they promised, you know, hey, we will always have these items in stock? Maybe, but I don't think that's their core. And I think they're steering towards what they do. So, you know, it can be very nuanced in retail. And we talked about Dollar General before. They are not trying to win you and I over. They are entirely concerned on pricing and value. And that means they're not going to pay that extra employee to keep the store looking neat. Uh, they're not going to spend money on fixtures or atmosphere or not having the stores be in total disarray. I hate speaking negatively of them because they're a really well-run company. Um, but you're going to get a different experience everywhere. And what you have to do as an investor is identify, is this company serving an audience? Is there enough of that audience? Um, and that's when you look at some of the struggling department stores. Like, you know, Dillard's is in good shape financially. Their balance sheet is good for some kind of oddball reasons. But they serve... I don't know, women in their 50s and 60s that are kind of aging out of needing a lot of new stuff. Well, you really have to change that audience. and I don't expect them to do it. So can a company linger for a long time because it's managed its cash well? Yeah, for the last decade, that's been the case with Macy's. But at some point, you can't pivot. And you know, again, we saw that with, with JCPenney. JCPenney under Marvin Ellison made some really smart moves in going into appliances and, and other areas. And it was just kind of too late. Consumers really weren't looking to them anymore. It also doesn't help that they executed really, really poorly, but that's a, that's a story for another day. Well, but you know, going from a JCPenney, even a Macy's perspective, but particularly JCPenney, what I find amazing, and, and this is true of the retail community as well, since retail uh, analysts live in the balance sheet and the, the spreadsheet world, the intangible assets that are the brand are so underfollowed and underappreciated. I don't care, you know, if in the mind of a consumer, a brand is irrelevant, it almost doesn't matter what the company does. If you don't change the narrative, change the brand, I'll bet you, and, and I agree with you, I remember going into a JCPenney and going, wow, this is totally not what I was expecting. And it was a positive experience. And yet nobody was in there because in their minds, it's an irrelevant brand called JCPenney. If they had understood that the brand JCPenney is dead and just create something different and then go in and change the store experience and the merchandise and identify who your target customer is, they probably would have created a new brand out of the ashes um, and been much more successful. So, so the, the brand relevancy is so important in this category of retail and most people just don't really focus on the brand. It just, it's this intangible thing that's kind of out there that's not as easy to analyze, which, you know, it, it makes it good for, for guys like me because I spend all my time on analyzing the relevancy part. You also have to focus on some basics. And it's, it's my complaint. So I, I would say I was a JCPenney customer. I wear like three different things. I dress like Fred Flintstone. So I don't, uh, you know, I, I go in and I buy 10 of the same shirt at a time. And for a while, the black polo I was wearing was from JCPenney. And the problem is they consistently did not have my size, which is a pretty common size. And then I had the experience of I needed some slides. I needed any slides. I was going to a pool and I didn't have shoes to wear and they didn't have any pair in size 10 and a half. Well, that's a problem. That's gonna make me cross you off the list. So if you put a Warby Parker in a JCPenney and you get me in, but then your merchandise is, and that's a function of not having any money. 
I think one of the things we see reported a lot that is almost always taken as a positive, but is actually a warning sign is you will see a company say, oh, like our balance sheet is much better. We cut inventory by 1.8 billion. Now that means one of two things. You either narrowed your product line in a way that makes sense and is focusing on what you're gonna sell more of, or, and this is usually what it is, you're not gonna have the inventory you need. Like this isn't Nike being brilliant about how they track, you know, the one size 14 pair of, of LeBrons that's in the network and getting them from West Palm Beach to Pittsburgh because one person with that size wants it. This is generally JCPenney having a not good ability to move inventory around, being out of, you know, extra large shirts, uh, you know, which is really, really a problem. Once you hit that spiral of having to be really, really careful with money, it tends to become a death spiral. If I go to a store and they don't have what I want, I'm probably not going back and I'm not sure how you win me over again. I don't know if you closed JCPenney for a month, came back as a, you know, uh, who knows what they call it. Or well, for a while they were going to merge with Belk. Not that I know that Belk has any sort of great reputation, but they come back and they revive the, uh, the Caldor brand or Ames or whatever. They, and they, we're, we're back and they redo it all. And there's all these cool things in it. I'm not so sure that works because I found other places to buy shirts so your time to solve your problem is way before problems happen. And that's what the good retailers have been doing. Look, we've seen inflection points. Both Best Buy and Walmart had points in recent history where things could have gone pretty badly. I think you would have argued pre-Hubert Jolie uh, that Best Buy was in real trouble. I would go to Best Buy to do all my research, take up all their staff time, and in front of them, order the television on Amazon. Like that was a bad business for them to be in. And they turned the corner really quickly. That's why I say, as a, a retail analyst or whatever it is I do for a living, whatever it is you do for a living, you really need to understand what's happening behind the scenes and what they're doing. You know, how do companies manage their order? Can this company fulfill an order from a store that came in online? Is a company smart enough? And I'll bring the Nike example. Let's say Nike has two pairs of those sneakers and one's in Miami and one's in, in LA and I order one in, in West Palm Beach. Well, they probably wanna send me the one from Miami, not the one from LA. And some companies can do that. And a lot of companies simply cannot. Yeah, I, just, just for fun, to prove this point, I kind of went through the consumer discretionary sector, industry by industry, and, and took the, the kind of what I consider to be the most relevant brand in each one of those categories and created this 30 stock, what I call kind of the retail hindsight portfolio, you know, in some <laughs> ways, you, you know, and, and that's, that's my job. I mean, my job is to understand what are the, you know, what I call the mega brands. What are the, what are the, the steady eddy, stable, predictable brands that are still highly relevant? And then also what are the disruptor brands? in industries that just need disruption, you know, like in auto retail, Carvana clearly is shaking things up. So if you combine the two, the steady eddies with the innovator and disruptors, you can, it's a really interesting portfolio. It's certainly fun for an investor to kind of have acts, you know, kind of have their toes dipped in both of those waters. But I took a look and I, and I just did, you know, I use sporting goods with Dick Sporting, luxury uh, apparel with LBMH, Footwear with Nike and Adidas, casino gaming with Caesars, uh, general merch with Target, with uh, yeah Target, warehouse shopping with Costco, athleisure, 
retail with Lululemon, luxury home furnishings with RH, restoration hardware, cosmetics with Ulta Beauty, e-commerce with Amazon, auto repair with O'Reilly Automotive, home improvement with Lowe's and Home Depot, consumer electronics with Apple, you know, fast casual with Starbucks, McDonald's and Chipotle, uh, general kind of discount uh, furniture with Wayfair, um, the discount apparel with TJ Maxx, consumer electronics with Best Buy, travel platforms with Expedia, um, general merchandise with Dollar General, Carvana with auto retail disrupting, Marriott with hotel and lodging, and then Peloton. Just those three, and that was, that was a quick exercise. You're talking 4X the market over the last couple of years. And so I'll, yes, I'll, push, I'll push back on a couple. Yeah. Uh, so I would absolutely take uh, booking over Expedia. <laughs> um, and oh, there's one more you said that, oh, Wayfair. So to me, Wayfair is a prime example of a company that really, really covered up its flaws during the pandemic that I don't think is gonna be a success. Their fulfillment is really expensive. Yeah. And right now during the pandemic, so I bought a desk on Wayfair. We bought a pantry on Wayfair because I couldn't go to a furniture store and buy those things. We are, uh, we just finished buying a, a new condo and our condo, we're probably gonna upgrade the couch and we're probably gonna upgrade the bed. There's exactly zero chance I'm buying a couch or a bed that I haven't sat in. So I think that entire category that Wayfair is in doesn't work, that there's just not going to be a giant demand for furniture we didn't see or touch. And I will also argue that both things I bought from Wayfair were a little bit disappointing, and I probably wouldn't have bought them had I seen them. And I know there's a lot of bulls on this, but I just think it fundamentally is ignoring the fact that if you buy an uncomfortable couch and have to return it, that's really, really, really difficult. So I know if we buy a bed, we're going to drive over to Mattress Firm or Macy's and we're going to lay in the bed. Like Wayfair can't offer that. And this isn't as simple as Casper Mattress, where you can open up, you know, a small retail presence and still do all your fulfillment online. Wayfair is way too much inventory. It's bloated. I, I don't know. It's that, That's the only one. Like, I'm sure the returns have been fine, but I don't see a long-term path there. And people get mad at me for that one. A lot of people like that company. No, I, I love it. I, I, I prefer, you know, Again, similar to you, I'm going to go sit. I'm going to go look at the visuals. Okay, I can visualize that in my house. And I know with technology, you know, even using Pinterest, there's there's ways that you can kind of visualize these things. And and here's a fun fact. You know, look at Wayfair since they became public, 700 versus 140. So it's been a great performer. But then when you look at Williams Sonoma, where you know Pottery Barn, West Elm, where you can go sit in there. 1500%, which is the S&P, sounds like a good return, 8100% for Williams-Sonoma. So, and, you know, look at Restoration Hardware, 1900% return versus 250. So it's clear being able to go into the store and sit on the couch and visualize your, your Super Bowl party might be some, you know, there might be some value there for sure versus Wayfair, which has been a great performer. But I agree, I, I think I've bought a few things over, over time, but it's certainly not a, a preference for, it was kind of in that e-commerce category for, for furniture. But so I, I live about a mile and a half from one of the restoration hardware palaces. It, it is a giant standalone store. And pretty much the only thing I can afford there is a donut and a cup of coffee. <laughs> it is an incredibly above my price range in terms of what I'm spending. But that being said, yeah, I, I think there is a reason that every mattress company has opened up 
some sort of you can go test our mattress even if you can't actually buy it at the store and have to have sort of an online delivery i i just think wayfair is too broad the other one i really love that you mentioned is caesars uh because i'm pretty critical of betting in general uh, people love DraftKings, and i don't think DraftKings does anything unique uh aside from the the fantasy sports stuff, which I just think is a niche audience. I think betting is going to become a commodity. You're going to be able to bet through any platform you're watching sports. It's another major reason I think Fubo is a terrible investment. But what does Caesars have? Caesars has my name in a loyalty program. What do I get for that loyalty program? I get free trips to Vegas. That's really, really valuable in keeping me around as a loyal customer. What else do I get? Well, if I maintain my diamond status, I don't even have to pay resort fees. I get access to a special lounge that when it's not a pandemic has really nice food and drinks are a dollar or two versus, you know, if you buy, buy a drink in Vegas when you're not playing, you're obviously gonna pay full price. So I think the casinos have this major lever that the DraftKings of the world aren't going to be able to have. And again, that is a very unpopular opinion. I think people throw out Fubo and they run commercials that say, say they have a lot of sports. Here's the thing. The only proprietary sports they have is some obscure soccer qualifying. They, it's not like they have the Premier League on, a, on, on an exclusive basis. This is a digital streaming company with 600,000 subscribers, and I'm not sure they make money at 50 million subscribers. And you know what they're not going to get to? They're not going to get to 6 million, let alone 50 million. So if your core business is a loser, you could throw out, oh, we'll get good at advertising. And, and sure, maybe, but it's not the opportunity people think it is. And at the end of the day, when sports betting is a thing, I actually think it's going to be centered around the big casinos because they have the customers. All the whales are already customers of the casino. Enos. Absolutely. And we own, we own Caesars and it's one of my favorite stocks for this kind of reopening, uh, reopening play as well as even Live Nation. I mean, I don't know about you, I'm a big music guy and I don't know that I've ever been as pent up to get out, to go to a concert, to go to Zach Brown or, you know, go, go, to, I'd love to go to Def Leppard. I mean, I, I am so jacked to be able to go get out into an open amphitheater and have some fun you know, th that's definitely I, a thematic. I'm a huge, problem. I'm a huge music guy, but I'm not an investor in that space. And I'll, I'll share that uh, my brother for years was a, an executive at AEG, one of the other big concert promoters. And the reason I'm not is the whole model to me, like, you know, paying a fee to get your ticket mailed to you. Like I don't invest in companies that I don't like doing business with. And in general, buying a ticket for concerts is pretty unpleasant. Like there, there's a reason a lot of bands have fought against it. So I'm not, it's a good business. Like in the case of AEG, they own the venues that they're selling tickets in. So they're making money six ways to Sunday. Um, you know, with Live Nation, it's often the same case. They might even own the artist in terms of having a, you know, a 360 deal, you know, where they're partnered on some of the touring revenue. But I tend to not invest in places, even if I know I could make money, that I just don't like doing business. Like I'm never buying shares of Comcast. I, I, I don't care if you tell me, you know, how much money they're going to make. I don't like dealing with them. They don't like their customers. I think that's pretty universally, uh, and not to make a pun on Universal Studios, which they own, where I, I am a pass holder, but have had some pretty bad experiences uh, in, re in recent months where they're understaffed and did not feel safe in any way close to what Disney delivers. Uh, so for me, when it comes to investing, experience does matter. I want to go to a place and 
and, and feel like it's kind of awesome. That like, that's why I like Ollie's. Like, it's fun to go to Ollie's. You don't know what you're going to get. And you might leave and be like, why did I just buy a Green Bay Packers crock pot? And like, well, it was 12 bucks. I needed a crock pot and, and I'm not a Packers fan, but it was such a good deal. Like, I'm just going to do it. So I've, I've gone off on a bit of a tangent here, but I do think, you know, that, that all of this matters when you factor it in and sorry to lead you astray there. No, I mean, one of the things that I've talked about a lot for, for since the beginning of the brand strategy was, you know, the, the Peter Lynch's one up on wall street was the first book I ever read in the industry as a young, as a young investor. And, and it instantly resonated with me and there's nothing worse than losing money in an investment that you made. And you don't even like the company, you know, you did it because it was, you know, it had a great technical chart or something and, or you heard a, a story from somebody else, but you didn't do the work and you're like, I don't really love that business, but I'm going to do it. I mean, it's great to make money from things you don't care about, but <laughs> I, I, it irritates me when I lose money. And then, and then I'm like, well, geez, I don't even, I don't even believe in the business. And yet I decided to put my money there. So that's why I think it's just really important for every investor to kind of look inside of their own lives and how they do, you know, how they live. And, and there's always going to be a bunch of companies, a bunch of brands that just really resonate with them. And then if you look around your friend network and your family network and, and the general community, if those brands also resonate with, with everybody else, those are, those are places that you should start looking for from a research perspective as an investor, because often you have some of the best long-term gains in things that you were just early on with, I just love this business, I'm gonna buy a little of that stock. And then you look back 10 years you know, forward and you say, well, holy smokes, I made a lot of money. And that could have, you know, over and above your S&P 500 returns, if you could have just put your money in an index fund, you know, th those extra gains in theory could have paid for, you know, extra Lululemon or Nike spending, you know, it, it, investing in the brands yeah, you that love, making those gains as a great hedge against the spending you do on those, those companies and on those products. So that's how I usually start my investing process. It's certainly st how I started as an investor is, hey, I look around and I'm doing this call on a MacBook and I, I have a, another one in front of me uh, where, where, where some of my notes are up and then I have an iPhone and I'm wearing an Apple watch. So that is a good way to go, hey, this company's really important in my life. Maybe it's important into other people's lives. And then you start digging in. Now, just because you love a company doesn't make it a good investment. I'll give another example. My iPhone is powered by T-Mobile. I love T-Mobile, a disruptor. They've probably done more for the American consumer than any other company over the, over the past 10 years or so in terms of changing their industry uh, and making it customer friendly. That being said, I'm not a big fan of businesses that are endless investment where you don't get added upside. So right now they're rolling out 5G. You know what happens when they're done rolling out 5G? You start making the 6G investment. And, and it's kind of a, a cycle that I don't particularly like investing in because you know, your improvements aren't, aren't that great. Like yes, 5G in theory, your, your Netflix download on your phone is gonna be better. How often does that one come up? Um, you know, are, are there going to be some people in rural areas that that can become their internet? Sure. Um, but a great company, I support them. Sometimes I even buy a, like one share of a company like that, where I just want to kind of mentally be supportive and track it. 
but I don't make significant investments in areas where I, I look at the business and go, wow, this is a great business, but maybe it's not investable. And that can be true once a thesis is played out. Let's say you own McDonald's and you believe that uh, there's a ceiling, that, that you know, McDonald's can top out at 8,000 more stores than it has, uh, and there's really only minor incremental growth with, say, limited time offers. I think that's probably true. I don't think there's much McDonald's can do to dramatically change their same store sales. So you might look at it and go, wow, great business, would love to own a McDonald's, but I don't need to own stock in McDonald's. And I'm, I'm just picking a random company. I, ha I haven't done that analysis on McDonald's anytime recently. Yeah, no, one of the things that, that I look at, similar to your, your T-Mobile uh, example, is, you know, how much opportunity do they even have to grow? You know, particularly in retail, it's all about the, the, the frequency of visits, the amount that we, you know, need to keep buying those products, how much store growth is there possible? And, and I guess maybe most importantly, can you, do you have a business model that has the opportunity to, to expand outside the US? You know, I mean, Costco obviously, they, they certainly are building more stores in the US, but the real opportunity with Costco is all the expansion they can do and they intend to do outside the US. So, you know, from what I call a mega brand, you know, you're talking about, do, does a company have multiple products that they can continuously sell to, to consumers? Do they have an opportunity to sell uh, across the globe rather than just the US? Do they appeal to kids all the way up to older adults? Because then you can serve multiple demographic groups. And then is that the, you know, the high brand love, you know, company within the, the category that we're talking about? If you get, if you check all of those boxes, those are where really interesting opportunities happen. And that's certainly where we spend our time trying to find that, you know, that juxtaposition of all of those things. And you're not always going to find, you know, some businesses are mostly U.S. I mean, Home Depot comes to mind, Lowe's mostly just here. But man, are, is it an important category? And are they, they are the dominant brand. And, and you know, Florin Decor certainly has done well. And it's been a pretty good performer, too. But it's, it's a niche player that's just trying to tuck in around areas where Home Depot and Lowe's aren't. And that to me isn't as interesting as something that's the dominant company all over the country. So an, an important lesson, because so I am not a particularly big fan of Home Depot or Lowe's because I'm incompetent in their areas of expertise and they are not high customer service companies. So to me, I, I understand they're both very well-run companies. They're both dominant in their field. I see significant, and I have a significant background in construction. I, my family owns a ladder and scaffolding company. I spent four years working there. Uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity on the pro side uh, to grow their business. Um, but floor and decor, I actually had a wonderful experience. We did a floor uh, in, in our previous condo that we just sold. Um, and it was a very difficult permit process. We, we needed to get a city permit. Our, our contractor wasn't that helpful because he was subbing it out to a friend of ours who was doing the work. And Florin Decor went to heroic efforts to get me documents I needed from the flooring provider to show that it met the fire and the noise and all the safety standards. I don't feel like that would happen at a Home Depot or a Lowe's. So there is a personal part of investing. Like I could tell you Lowe's is probably going to be an investment that makes you money, but I don't want to own it. And I like Marvin Ellison a lot, their CEO. I've seen him speak a number of times. He's a really, really smart guy. 
but I don't think they're ever going to be a place I want to shop. So there's always, you don't have to invest in every good investment. Like I like to feel good about my portfolio. I like to look and go like, wow, these are companies I am really behind and their success doesn't just help me financially. It's also like, oh, hey, there's going to be more of this restaurant chain I like and I'll, I'll be able to visit it when I'm in other parts of the world. Like that matters to me. I know it's not important. I have a very good friend in the investing space um, who says I will invest in companies that do evil and use the money I, I make off that to do good. So if he identifies a company that he thinks is going to have massive returns, he does not let the fact that they sell, you know, tobacco to puppies or whatever it might be, um, you know, deter him because it's, it's financial. For me, it's not purely financial. There's an emotional aspect uh, to the stock picks I make every month. Yeah. It's it, another fun fact, you know, since Lowe's went public, in 93, I'm, I'm using YCharts, which is a great service. If you guys don't use charting uh, uh, and the data feeds at YCharts, you should check it out. But uh, yeah, we, we are actually partners with YCharts. So nice. we have a number of, of I Y-charts love those account. guys. Love this. I mean, I, it's my go-to for everything on the, on the research and the, and the charting. Uh, 15,900% versus 1,500. So kind of about a 10x on lows. I, ironically, I would have thought Home Depot would have been a better performer. Home Depot is only up about 5,000% versus 1,500 since they went public. So Lowe's has actually been a better performer uh, since they went public, which is kind of interesting um, because every time I go into Lowe's, I actually enjoy the Lowe's experience because the, the stores are super clean. There doesn't appear to be that many people in there, which is great for me, but clearly they're doing massive amounts of sales. So, I, I, you know, maybe my store just isn't isn't uh, the one, the one I, 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 I echo your thoughts. Lowe's is significantly cleaner than Home Depot. It's yeah. generally better organized. And I actually think a lot of their sales are deceptive because the people who are in there are people who are buying, you know, a paintbrush. And a lot of their sales that are, that are bigger are made at the customer service desk. They're made online. Uh, you know, contractor sales can be delivered. So I know when I redid my basement, when I lived in Connecticut, uh, I had a commercial account through work and I literally just had a giant load of drywall and two by fours and all the stuff I needed uh, delivered and then had to manually carry it in because I didn't have basement access. So, you know, look, I think there's big opportunities in those spaces. Um, we might see some lumpy results though. Like I, I think it's important to note, and this is gonna be true, I don't count any retail results this quarter. Like I think we're getting a, a boom from the, the stimulus checks, the sort of end of the pandemic. Lowe's and Home Depot had a flurry of people going, hey, I'm stuck inside. Maybe I'll paint my house or maybe I'll build out that office I've needed. And that might be, and we saw this with Netflix and with, with Disney, they might've pulled forward some demand. So if, if they have a bad quarter somewhere in the next few months, that doesn't mean their business has slowed. That just might mean that the blockbuster quarters they've had the past couple might have taken some business. You know, all these people getting their houses ready to sell that housing market might not exist a year from now uh, because there, there might not be these huge premiums. Look, we sold our condo because it was worth 50% more than we paid for it four years ago and, and bought a resort condo that we own 100%. So those types of transactions may slow down. The other thing, and, and I, I wanna sound a bell on this because I, I am a journalist and journalists are for the most part, not great at covering the business world. And this includes a lot of business journalists. And what do I mean? How many stories have you seen recently about inflation? 
And while there might be some inflation, the reality is there are supply chain problems. So we didn't know when the pandemic was going to end. And I'll, I'll share a ridiculous example I've, I've used on a lot of shows. We have a home near Disney World. And May is not a giant month for travel. Kids are still in school. It's starting to get hot. It's, it's really June, July, and August that picks up. So the target near us was in very short supply of cheap beach towels, which is something people buy. It's right at the front of the target. If you're a tourist and you're going to a water park or you're going to the beach, there's no beaches that close to there. But if you're going to a pool or whatever, you might want to buy a better towel than the one that's in your hotel room. Well, their supply chain didn't plan for that because in past years, that wasn't a big month. We're seeing those sorts of issues with the car industry. There's about a 28 day supply of cars when normally there's an 88 day supply. Now, some of that is chip shortage related, but a lot of it is these companies slowed down production because they didn't, they didn't expect there to be demand during the pandemic and demand roared back all at once. Right now, prices are abnormally high around Disney, even though the parks aren't fully open. They're still at limited capacity because for what hotel rooms have reopened, the demand came all at once. Airfare is really high because your airlines cannot quickly dial up routes that they slowed down or cut because of the pandemic. Good luck renting a car right now. The reason a rental car is I, mean, I don't know, 10 times more expensive in many cases, isn't because of inflation. It's because rental car companies sold off their inventory to get through the pandemic. And now that they want to buy more, car companies, which are in short supply, don't want to sell cars to rental companies because they're lower margin versions of car sales. So they're putting a priority on the high margin customer sales. So you're going to see a lot of stories in the news that maybe aren't true. Gas prices are another one people talk about. Gas prices aren't political. Gas prices aren't because of anything that's happened in Washington. Gas prices are high now because demand ramped up really, really quickly at a time when everybody had dialed back production because for 14 months, my entire driving was a one mile commute to an office uh, which was empty. And I'm one of the few people that started going to an office during the pandemic, but with all of us home, there wasn't enough room in my house for us to work and maybe sitting in the drive-through line at Starbucks. So you're going to see a lot of weird demand, a lot of very strange pricing in the next 12 months. And you're going to see a lot of retail earnings that maybe don't make that much sense. Um, and I kind of discount them. I, I always liken it back to my days in the ladder and scaffolding business, where if I made a low margin multi-million dollar sale, uh, where me, we maybe never even handled the goods, I just facilitated the delivery and pick up a check, we would put that on our results with an asterisk because it wasn't repeatable the next year. It was kind of a one-time bonus. Well, there's a lot of people who went to Dillard's to buy pants in the past month because we've only needed tops for Zoom calls. Is that repeatable? Probably not. So you're really going to have to look at things with a much more critical eye. And I don't buy stocks for the year. So I'm really focusing on management and do these companies make good choices? Not so much did they deliver in quarter three. Yeah, the... the, the it's going to be great to smooth out last year and this year so we can get a real read and compare that two-year stack with the last three-year stack ending at the end of 2019. Then it's going to give people an indication of, you know, the, the, the last two years versus the regular trends. And then you can do your work to decide which ones are going to mean revert back to the trend and which ones maybe benefited for the last two years. And now they have millions of new clients and they, they kind of reset at a much higher level. So you know, listen, we got about five minutes left. 
would love to let's let's talk about pop culture i mean what what companies are you super pumped about right now and you know just feel free to just talk about anything that you you're really interested or excited about currently yeah so if i could only own one company right now it would be walt disney uh, because Walt Disney has a massive advantage. And, and look, I'm a Netflix subscriber. I'm an everything subscriber because it's kind of what I do for a living. Uh, but when you look at Walt Disney, they spent $4 billion buying Star Wars, about $7 billion buying Pixar, and $4 billion buying Marvel. Wow, does that make the Apple deal for MGM look preposterous. So you, all they have to do to grow Disney Plus is say, okay, we're going to have one signature series airing at a time. So it, it was just uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier. It's about to be Loki. You've got a Star Wars cartoon running now. That's probably not a driver, but is at least satisfying the membership. Netflix has to go, let's take 300 shows and throw them at the screen and, and see what works. So, you know, then you go, well, as the theme parks reopen, demand is going to be incredible. I, I mentioned I was a Disney pass holder. I'm not going anywhere near the theme parks probably this summer, unless it's unless it's midweek or, you know, maybe I'll run over to Epcot to have lunch or something. Uh, but, but I'm not spending a weekend there because demand is going to be incredible. Um, and you just look across the company and go, wow, this is best in brand. And, and any results they had, you know, it, it doesn't matter if the movie theater business comes back. They'll make their billions of dollars off the next Avengers movie, uh, whether it's through driving people to join their service or some combo of theater. And, and, and at home, there are a few companies that are set up like they are. Uh, I, you know, I'm also tantalized by Roku. I, I, you know, I don't own shares in Roku, but I think Roku's done a really good job of being the Switzerland of streaming devices. And if you look at their competitors, I'm not so sure I want to give Amazon access to my data that we saw that when Amazon tried to have a retail point of sale system that a lot of retailers are like, nah, like I'll go with square. Like I don't want Amazon knowing what I'm selling. So I think Roku is really well positioned there. And I don't know who is watching Roku channel or Pluto or any of these other free services where like the best product is like a Manimal rerun, but there's an enormous amount of ad dollars being generated by Roku on that type of platform. So I do think they're an acquisition target. I never buy a stock simply based on that. I think somebody else is going to buy it. I think it's a bad regulatory environment for an acquisition right now. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is we are in the days of consolidation. Not all of these streaming services are going to work. Uh, I was pretty disappointed uh, at the, the, the discovery um, CBS, excuse me, Discovery and, and Time Warner deal, because I don't think they're complementary. I thought Discovery Plus at $4.99 a month was a really great niche service. I'm not sure how that adds to HBO and CNN and the other things there, but I do think you're going to see anything that's even kind of a franchise is going to sell to one of the big players because someone between HBO Max, Peacock, they're going to fail. You know, you have your three winners. You have your Amazon Prime Video, which I don't understand why they spend that money. I wouldn't spend that money, but by virtue of how many people are joining Prime, it's just a big drop. It's a big winner. Then you have Netflix. Then you have Disney. I'm not sure there's room for any of the other players uh, on that aggregate giant $14.99 a month basis. So I'm really excited to see how this all shakes out and whether we get some sort of like crazy Viacom, CBS, Comcast alliance, or maybe even see a, a television network sell. Or what I would do if I was Time Warner in Discovery is I'd sell off the parts. I would keep everything that complemented my, my food and home and lifestyle brand. Maybe I would keep HBO 
and then I'd kind of get rid of all the other things and you could probably sell them for more than you just paid for them. So that was an incredibly expensive deal for a company that's gonna open up with $55 billion worth of debt. Uh, that is not an amount of debt. Like it's, it's hard to get a credit card when you have $55 billion worth of debt. I think there's just so much legacy thinking in that industry. They, they all kind of sat sitting pretty, you know, not really caring about Netflix for 15 years ago. And, and then they all just got their, their lunches eaten and all their board, you know, the people in the board, the management teams, they just sat back, they saw the free cash flow, they just didn't change. And you see that across so many different industries. All right, last, last curveball question. Given that the last two years, this year and last year, has been such a weird, you know, uh, anomaly, who do you, is there an industry category for spending or some, or, or some companies or, or brands that you think over the next couple of years have some of the easiest comparisons because the last two years or maybe just the last year was so difficult. Any, any areas? I mean, cause that's certainly been, been where I'm, I'm focused. Like who can tiptoe over estimates and, and has done all the cost cutting because of COVID to stay alive that they may come out of this just super lean and mean with massive demand and good pricing power. So we talked about TJX before that is a company that had zero sales for a couple of quarters during the, not literally zero, but they were largely closed. And now they had a good balance sheet. So they're, commodic, they're coming out of this very strong. And for the next few years, there's an awful lot of merchandise. They can pick and choose what they want to feature, what they want to buy. They have a lot of pricing power. The other one I'll throw out, uh, and it's not a space I'm investing. I don't invest in airlines, but Southwest Airlines, which was the only, maybe not the only, the only major well-run well airline, they went into the pandemic with a good balance sheet and a great uh, relationship with their employees. And they were very upfront with their employees. They openly talked about, should we have rolling furloughs? Should everyone take a 20% pay cut? How are we going to manage this? And when the pandemic has started to end, they're adding routes. They are taking over routes other airlines couldn't keep. They are going to buy planes. They're going to be in a position to pick up workers that were let go at other places. And they're going to come out of this massively stronger. Again, I am not a fan of investing in airlines because it's so depended on fuel prices and you know any any industry where one crash which would be statistically irrelevant uh, is going to dramatically set you back the other thing i don't believe in and people get really mad at me about this uh, yesterday they got really mad on twitter is everyone says business travel won't rebound uh, oh no one's ever gonna do they've been saying that since the dawn of video calls so from the first time I drove to New York City from Long Island to sit in a room and do a video chat at a meeting, I think I was 19, I'm 47 now. People said, oh, no one's gonna fly again. Maybe a little bit less, but here's the reality. We don't fly for business because, we, because we're, we're betting on the meeting. We fly to business because dinner with colleagues is fun and trade shows in Vegas. You might work seven to seven, but you know what you do after that? You go to a steakhouse and you gamble all night. Like, like people want to not be home. And I know it's not trendy to not say like, well, like I really want to spend more time with my family. We've all been stuck at home. You know what I want to do? I want to spend less time with my family and I'm a hundred percent sure they want to spend less time with me. And obviously <laughs> if you're a road salesman who is doing 22 days a year on the road, you're thrilled if you can do 15 or even 10. But for most people that have those four or five trips a year, they're going to defend the validity of those trips. And I also think people are undercutting that with offices becoming decentralized, you're going to see a lot more just, hey, Joe lives in Montana, the office is in, 
is in Boston four times a year, he now flies to Boston when previously he didn't fly at all because he lived where the office was. So I think the, the prediction of the death of business travel has historically always been wrong. I think it's going to be wrong here too. Uh, I, I agree with you. I think there's a lot of things, there's a lot of opportunities and, you know, great conversation, Dan. The, investing in these great companies that serve consumers it's so logical and and that's why we have so much fun talking about it but it can be so profitable too and and so few people you know I spend time on Twitter and for me Twitter is a little more toxic I, I I kind of am a passive user of Twitter these days I kind of just use it as a great litmus test for where sentiment is towards a bunch of different asset classes but the reality is these are great businesses. They serve huge audiences. They've, the, the best ones have had great returns. And at the end of the day, our, our goal through investing is to get great returns. So while some of them aren't as sexy as, you know, which is the next great cloud stock and, or, or which is the next technology leader, the returns are wonderful. And in many cases, the returns are even better than some of the sexy stories within technology. So don't forget about the retail sector. Don't, don't forget about the consumer sector. And uh, Seven Investing is a great place to go, uh, to, to go learn, not just about your sector, but I, I'm, you, know, you guys, how many advisors do you guys have? Yeah, so, so we have Seven. That's where the name comes from. Uh, and we have uh, Max Chasco, who is a a, a biomedical expert has an advanced degree. Matt Cochran covers the payment space. Uh, Steve Symington and Anurban Mahante are all about those high growth tech companies. Simon Erickson uh, plays in all sorts of different, different fields. Uh, Dana Abramovitz is an expert in healthcare. She programmed the healthcare track for South by Southwest for years. So we kind of cover it all. Um, and you know, one of the things I've been a real advocate for is I don't think investing in retail gets a ton of respect. And look, I get it. If you're 22, it's really exciting to have these high risk companies that might do crazy quick growth, but I'm 47. You know, the, the time I need some of this money is closer for me maybe than it is for, for some of the other people in this space. And I look at it and I say, okay, let's say you buy shares of Costco. Well, Costco is an elephant up the hill. It's not going to be up 50% in a day, but it's also you're not going to lose your capital investing in, in companies, you know, in the retail space that you understand the business that you see that are well run. There's obviously risk with with everything. You know, we saw the little uh, the little problems Chipotle had with their with their E. coli scandal, and it took a few years to recover from that. But what's a few years when you're long term investing? So please check us out at seveninvesting.com. Uh, you should do so because the our, our price is really low and that's changing as of July 7th. So $17 a month, $170 a year. If you join before July 7th, you lock those prices in. If you do not, $49.99 a month or $49 a month or $3.99 a year. So you have every incentive to get to seveninvesting.com slash subscribe. Thank you for letting me promote that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I've listened to the podcast. And now, now that I know the the YouTube channel exists. I'm going to subscribe to that one too and check it out. I mean, listen, there's no monopoly on good ideas. So <laughs> I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your wisdom. I love following you on Twitter and uh, let's, do, let's do it again sometime. I'm happy to do it anytime. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Have a good long weekend too. You too. See ya. We'll
Thanks for listening to Mega Brands, everybody. I'm your host, Eric Clark. For more information on this podcast and to learn more about the brand relevancy scoring system we use, be sure to check out the website at globalbrandsmatter.com. While you're there, make sure to sign up for the market newsletter and check out my latest thoughts on our favorite portfolio brands in the dynamic brand section. If you have any questions or want to learn more about the dynamic brands approach, send me a message on the contact tab. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Have a great day.